Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Today, uh, let me start off by asking the question, what is encouragement? And um, I'm going to first of all, define it negatively by looking at what discouragement is. So if you go to the dictionary, um, discourage means to deprive of courage, to dishearten, to hinder, to deter. So that's what discouragement looks like. So to encourage is to inspire with courage, to give spirit or hope, to hearten, to spur on, to give help to. And friends, uh, it's a no-brainer to know that we are living in a very discouraging world. A a world where way too often the theme of life seems to be to put people down, uh, to find their faults, uh, to always discourage as much as we can. I mean, you just got to spend five minutes on social media uh, and discover very, very quickly how toxic the world can be. Uh, What staggers me on social media is how toxic Christians can be. Uh, And and I think way too often we forget that picture of the church that we've just seen in that video clip. That we're all so different that God has drawn us together to be His body. And we've got to celebrate our differences, celebrate our diversity, celebrate our stories. Because that's what makes this thing so beautiful. Can I hear an amen this morning? I had a post pop up on my feed early in the week, interestingly, as I was preparing this. Um, And it was for a pastor, he's obviously in my friends list, uh, from New South Wales. And he posed a really, really interesting question uh, and then gave his thoughts around it. But the question was, is suicide a sin? And uh, his, his thoughts around it Uh, were really sound, really scriptural, and incredibly, incredibly grace-filled. What staggered me was the comments from Christians that followed that were so judgmental and toxic. I couldn't believe it. And I I, I just wanted to shut the feed down and get out of it. But I was really curious to see if I could scroll through all of the comments and actually find anything that I felt was really positive uh, in response to that question. Uh, So (laughs) I scrolled through. I I, I found a few that were well-balanced. But sadly, most of the comments were, were just ignorant. They were toxic. They were judgmental. And they were what I would call unscriptural pharisaic rants from Christians and it was so disappointing and in my growing frustration and I I, I seldom do this but I actually started typing a response Uh, and then I made a wiser decision and thought that's a pointless exercise it's only going to add my frustration and just fuel the whole thing anyway Uh, and the comments that would have come would have been totally ignorant anyhow uh, What I had formulated in my head was this. 
I am dumbfounded by the level of ignorance demonstrated by Christians in these comments. The complete lack of any comprehension in understanding the causes, triggers, underlying trauma, grief and distress that leads people to suicidal ideation is astounding and yet again confirms to me that Christians need to spend less time behind keyboards spewing their judgment on those they personally deem to be sinners and more more time on the streets loving the broken. Amen? If you didn't amen, you can talk to me later. Friends, people are living in an incredible, incredibly discouraging world. And what they need to hear from the church, from God's people, is love, acceptance, encouragement, and us getting out and drawing alongside the broken. The church should be a place of encouragement. Now, last week, we looked at a moment in David's life where everything seemed to be going wrong. Everyone, it seemed, in David's life was totally turning against him. And the picture that we, uh, that we uh, dug into last week was the picture of David and his uh, army returning from uh, a conflict with the Philistines. And in their absence, the Amalekites had totally ransacked their hometown of Ziklag. This was a massive, massive defeat. 1 Samuel 30 and 3, when David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. The King James rendering of verse 6 says, But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And when the men of Ziklag came home, their women were gone, their boys were gone, which meant the future leaders of their people were gone. And Ziklag is this deserted, ruined city. Everything had been destroyed. The Bible says David and his men were greatly distressed. For David, not only is he carrying the burden of his men's losses, not only is he carrying this great sense of defeat from the enemy, but he's also got to contend with his own personal burden and heartache. And now the men that he was leading begin to turn against him as well. And they start blaming David for their problems. And as we discovered last week, when David had nobody else to turn to, he encouraged himself by looking to God. Again, verse 6, but David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. So part one last week, and I really encourage you to review it. Um, we looked at what it is and what it means to actually encourage ourselves. But today I want to look at a contrasting story in David's life that shows the importance of being encouraged by others. Now, we remember, and it's, it's, it was great, uh, I had to smile when uh, I heard um, Rhonda's communion message because she talked about this conflict uh, between uh, the Philistines and Israel uh, and uh, Goliath, because this is essentially where David enters the scene. Because David uh, comes on the scene basically as a shepherd boy who becomes armor bearer to the king. And then in this conflict, conflict in the Valley of Elah, uh, we have Goliath is put forward as this, you know, 
Whoever beats Goliath, that will decide the outcome of the war instead of having this huge conflict. But nobody would go up, uh, up against Goliath. And David, the shepherd boy, steps into battle, steps into the spotlight. And as those of us who are familiar with the story knows, he killed Goliath when everybody else, including the king, was unwilling to go up against Goliath. Now, David, this shepherd boy, becomes the national hero. Uh, they, return, uh, they return home from this conflict and the people are singing an anthem. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And so here is David, this, this shepherd boy that nobody had heard of until this point, becomes the nation's hero. And Saul, who was always troubled in spirit, just saw this as a threat. He was incredibly threatened, incredibly jealous, and he vows to actually kill David. So David here is in fear of his life. But in the background, there's another relationship forming, and that is a mateship between David and King Saul's son, Jonathan. And they became the closest of friends. They became inseparable. But because of Saul's jealousy, David has to flee for his life and ends up in the wilderness. And we read this account in 1 Samuel 23 and 14. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. Did you get those words in verse 16? And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in the Lord. And we've got to understand the great contrast between this week's story and last week's story. Last week, when David had absolutely nobody around him to encourage him, he encouraged himself by looking to God. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. But here in today's passage, we have a fearful David being pursued by a murderous king. He is tired. He is depleted. He is fearful and even the strength that he needed to encourage himself in the Lord wasn't there on this occasion. And Jonathan draws alongside of him and encouraged him. He helped him find strength in the Lord. I love that picture. What an incredible contrast. Now the Hebrew term for the word that we use, encourage, gives us the image of, of actually putting strength into somebody's hands or putting strength in their arms or their body so that they can resist the pressure of an attack. And Jonathan sought David out. And this is one of the things as a family, as a, as a spiritual family, as this expression of the body of Christ we need to be actively encouraging one another because I guarantee there's people in this room this morning who are going through stuff that weighs so heavy, you are struggling even to find your strength in the Lord. 
And you've got to know that's okay. And that's why we need to be in family together because there's those moments where others need to encourage us and others need to hold us up and others need to hold up those heavy hands that hang down and say, it's okay. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to help you find your strength in the Lord. Can I hear an amen this morning? And the cool thing was Jonathan sought David out. David didn't have to send him an email. Jonathan sought him out. He, he knew, he's thinking, man, David's alone in the desert. He's going to be so down. He's going to be so discouraged. He's going to be so fearful. I need to seek him out. And the lesson for us today is that we need to be seeking people out, actively seeking people out to encourage them. Don't wait for an invitation. <coughs> I've never, ever, ever heard anybody say, I was really offended by the encouragement you gave me. Encouragement doesn't need an invitation. And this is what makes Jonathan's time with David so incredibly significant. Just his presence drawing alongside of him would have been a great encouragement. And sometimes the greatest encouragement we can be to one another, particularly in those dark times, is just to be there, just to sit with someone. You haven't got to say anything. It's one of, the, one of the greatest pastoral strategies is just to sit with people. Don't, don't feel you've got to have all the answers and just say, hey, it's cool. I'm here. I'll just sit with you. If you want to talk, we'll talk. If you don't, we won't. And David's, uh, sorry, Jonathan's presence with David in that moment would have been such an encouragement. Also, the genuine relationship they had meant that David could be totally transparent and honest about his feelings. Sometimes in the body of Christ, we've got to be a little bit more transparent than we sometimes are because I think, and I really pray that we've never fostered this culture here at Life, but I think sometimes we've got to, there's almost an obligation to pretend that I've got it all together. Uh, that's not the case. We're here to do life together. And the struggles that you're facing should never be judged as somehow being a reflection of how you're traveling, traveling spiritually. You know, sometimes stuff happens. And we're not immune as God's people from the pressures and the struggles of life. But where we have this wonderful privilege is that we can draw alongside of one another. And when we don't have the strength ourselves, even to reach out to God, even to pray, that others can draw alongside of us and say, it's okay. That's okay. I'll pray on your behalf. I, I, I want to help you find your strength in God. And David didn't say to Jonathan, oh, well, that's okay, mate. You didn't need to be here. I'm, I'm not afraid. I'm doing okay. He didn't have to put on some false facade. He could be totally transparent. He didn't say, I don't need you. He didn't say, you've wasted your time. What are you doing here? No, David was scared. And because of the trust that he had, because of the depth of the friendship with Jonathan, he was able to be transparent about exactly where he was. And I'm sure when, uh, when he saw Jonathan in that moment, the uh, Bible doesn't give us a clue, but I, I guarantee there would have just been an overflow of emotion that just says, man, I needed you here right now. Hebrews 10 and 23 says this, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, 
But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So there's a couple of commands there. Verse 24, he says, let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Second half of verse 25, he says, let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. They're, they're pretty strong commands to spur one another on, to encourage one another. And the context of those commands is found in the first part of verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Friends, it's not simply not possible to encourage one another or to spur one another on if you're not around them. We cannot be an encouragement, nor can we receive encouragement if we live our lives in seclusion, always pushing other people away from us. And the reality in our world today is that isolation is on the increase. And I've got to tell you, the pandemic has intensified that a million folds. As a culture, there's no question we're radically different to what we were a generation ago or a decade ago or even three years ago. Human interaction is on the decrease. And the way that we live our lives on a daily basis actually reflects that. Even in regards to the, uh, the purchase of goods and services, our society is moving from customer service to self-service. Uh, it started with banks many years ago with ATMs. Even now, they've moved on to online banking and closed Westpac branch in Alveston. Don't you hate that? Service stations moved many years ago from driveway service to self-service. We see it in our supermarkets. We've got the self-service checkouts. Airport check-ins, I find that one numbingly frustrating. You're checking yourself in for your flight. And then the ultimate horror, McDonald's. I mean, it used to be that you'd go to McDonald's and you'd be served by a young 14-year-old with their first job learning all about customer service. Well, you don't have that nowadays. You arrive at McDonald's and are greeted by a bank of touchscreens and you put your order in and you pay for it and you go and collect it. Then we've got the huge shift to online shopping. You can order everything that you need without even talking to anybody. Process your payment, have it home delivered, and you've not interacted with a single person. I think uh, in probably about a decade, and again, the pandemic gave this a huge shove. Uh, I think uh, cinemas will be a thing of the past. I, I mean, people can stream whatever they want into their living room on their big HD screens. and They can do it when they want, when it suits them. And they haven't got to bother going out. Why do you need going out when you can do that? And it's sad that many movies are going straight to streaming. They're not even being released in cinemas. So the writing's on the wall. And that's a tragedy. Even today in education. Here's a, here's a statistic which is interesting on a couple of levels. Of everyone studying at a university in Australia, 33% of postgraduate courses are delivered exclusively online. That's one third. You can't access it at all other than online. That's interesting Another, at a number of levels. One level at which that is really interesting and quite tragic is that's a pre-pandemic statistic. 
A third of postgraduate students never sit in a classroom with others, and for many of them, the only time they actually ever meet their classmates is for a couple of hours at their graduation. And again, that's a pre-pandemic uh, statistic. It's actually really hard, and I spent a lot of time searching online for it. Uh, Post-pandemic statistics regarding online in universities are really hard to come by, and a couple of articles that I read are saying the universities are actually being really, really guarded about releasing that kind of information. But I did find this from a Sydney Morning Herald article uh, from August, and there's um, a guy called Andrew Norton, who's an expert in national university higher education. Uh, I had to read that. And he says this, online learning was never supposed to be the dominant stream of tertiary education. Norton believes that the lasting impact of, the COVID of COVID-19 changes to university life and education won't be fully understood until years to come. He said the impact of the people you meet on campus in and outside the classroom is hard to quantify and extremely important throughout the rest of your career and building networks. I think this is an experience that will probably not end well. And our society as a whole, just in the way that we live our lives, is becoming increasingly disconnected, withdrawn and isolated. Isolation leads to loneliness and loneliness leads to the, to the epidemic that we're now seeing of the massive, massive rise in uh, mental health issues. And it's concerning. And then we've got digital communication. Which for most of us, if we're honest, most of our communication nowadays is not a phone call, it's text messages, one line. And with the growing addiction to smartphones and devices and to social media... Even when you're with people, you're not with people. How many times have you seen a group of people sitting around a table at a restaurant they're all looking at their phones? Devices have also caused an epidemic of lazy and disconnected parenting. Far easier to give your kid a device than to go through the time and effort of taking them outside and helping them learn to ride a bike or something like that. And I say all of this without wanting to sound alarmist, but I think there's a huge spiritual attack going on in this regard. Devil plays dirty. And in a spiritual attack, I'll use the parallel of physical warfare. Isolating the enemy is a really, really good strategy. If you can isolate the enemy, they're really easy to defeat. And the same spiritually speaking, if you can isolate people, they're easy to defeat. The devil knows that. Anybody will tell you that when you were working with somebody who is suffering an addiction, a substance abuse issue, isolation is the worst thing in the world for somebody with that struggle. And so what do we do? We put them into support groups we put them into community because support groups work 
In a support group, there is acceptance and accountability and encouragement when we meet together with others who are going through the same stuff that I've been going through. But if we're isolated, we are totally, totally vulnerable. In community, we are strengthened. So we are vulnerable when we're isolated. And I think there's nobody that would disagree that long-term isolation for anybody is ultimately not a good thing. But again, get a hold of this. I, I think we know that the devil is very cunning. He's very crafty. What if the devil a few decades ago thought, I got a really, really good plan. I reckon this will work. If I can just get humans addicted to isolation, I reckon I'll get a foothold. If I can just get humans addicted to isolation, maybe I've got a chance. All I have to do is get humanity addicted to isolation. Friends, let me tell you, it's happening the world over. Humanity is becoming addicted to isolation. And friends, here is where the church must be countercultural. From the very beginning... Go back to Genesis 2 and 18. It's not good for man to be alone. Proverbs 18 and 1. One who has isolated himself seeks his own desires. He rejects all sound judgment. Friends, Christians should never, ever, ever isolate themselves from other Christians. Not only is it dangerous, but simply we cannot be obedient to the Great Commission on our own. God has put us in community. We can't advance the cause of God's kingdom if we're separated from other people. Not only did God create us not to be alone, we are all, as the Bible tells us, a part of the body of Christ. We are created for fellowship with one another. And imagine this picture. If the devil had two options, one option was to go after a strong group of believers who are fellowshipping together, or to go after that Christian who has isolated themselves, who is the easier target? Goes without saying, the one in isolation. Friends, in the New Testament, when we talk about this, I think in our Connect class, there's over 50 commands in the New Testament. And they're commands, not suggestions. Over 50 commands in the New Testament that cannot be fulfilled unless... You are in fellowship with other Christians. John 13, 35, by, all this, uh, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And these are the one another commands. Romans, 10 and, uh, Romans 12 and 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Ephesians 5 and 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Colossians 3 and 13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Romans 15 and 7, accept one another. Colossians 3 and 16, teach and admonish one another. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 11, therefore encourage one another. Galatians 5 and 13, serve one another uh, in love. Hebrews 3 and 13, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. And these are the one another commands. And as I said, there's over 50 of them just in the New Testament. Commands that cannot be fulfilled if you're living your life in isolation. 
Commands that can only be fulfilled when you are committed to others in the body of Christ. And again, it's what I love about our church family. We recognize this. We're here for each other. To love and to accept, not to judge. To love and to accept and to embrace. And again, I just love the diversity that we saw in that opening clip. It's a beautiful picture of the church. I'm going to invite the team to come back. Friends, you cannot thrive spiritually alone. We have to ready ourselves for the battle. Bible is really, really clear on this. We are in a spiritual battle and we need each other. We are vulnerable in isolation. We are stronger together. Can I hear an amen this morning? And I'll wrap this up where we begin. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching.